0: Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast, brought to you by Farmer's Guardian and the CLA. I'm your host, Farmer's Guardian news editor, Olivia Mitchley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through all your favourite platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure you stay up to date with new episodes. On the show this week, and as the Brexit clock ticks down, we begin a special series looking at how businesses can and are preparing for exiting the EU. We'll bring you a range of views from across the industry, and this week we're looking at the sheep sector. More on that later. But first, and staying with sheep, our listeners will be well aware of the dramatic fall in wool prices which has seen many farmers discarding the clip. FG reported in May how wool checks were expected to nosedive due to the halt in trade brought about by the coronavirus, leaving British wool with 9 million kilograms of unsold stock before the start of this season. So where has it all gone wrong? Alex Black has been speaking to one exacerbated farmer.
1: CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership. And during this COVID crisis, the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find
2: out more, go to www.cla.org.uk.
0: Market disruption from COVID-19 has led to wool prices hitting rock bottom this season. Many farmers aren't even receiving enough to cover the costs of shearing and there's been reports of wool being buried or even burnt. Industries called on the government as part of their green agenda to utilise more wool in things like insulation. I spoke with sheep farmer Gareth Wynne-Jones about the impact on his business and why he believes we should be championing British wool.
3: I think we're in a, a very sad time in our country when we're not utilising fantastic products like wool. Um, You know, we're talking about climate change. We're talking about environmentally friendly products. And one of the the best ones, wool, is being devalued. Um, You know, as a sheep farmer, we're shearing our sheep every year. In Wales, we have 10 million sheep. And uh, each one of them will grow a fleece every year and produce that you know by storing carbon eating grass and it's fantastic it is absolutely a product that you could use to do so many things and for us you know it's it's costing just over a pound to shear one cheap and we're hopefully if we're lucky we're getting 20 pence per fleece which is very very heartbreaking and if you'd have gone back 50 years the wool clip would most probably have paid the rents for the farm or would have kept a farm worker for a year in a wage so that's the difference in a very very short time but we shouldn't be heartbroken we should be looking for innovative ways to use wool I use the dags the, the bits that you know come from the belly and that have a lot of poo and uh, on the back end and I put them around my vegetable plot and it's truly amazing it keeps the moisture in the ground when it's dry it keeps the frost off and slugs don't like it. it keeps the weeds down it is absolutely fantastic and feeds the soil it breaks down in 12 months and I've been using it for 4 years and it's it's just truly a fantastic product. Um, as well, here we have immersive tours where the Americans come. Um, well, we have people from all over the country. Of course, we haven't had them this year because it's been COVID. But um, over the years, over the last six years, we've been doing these tours where we do sheepdog demonstration shearing demonstration, and I talk about wool and you know how cheap it is. And um, one of the American. Uh, Two people asked if they could take some wool home, I asked my daughter. My daughter filled a little bag and gave it to her, she was a weaver. But it was a little bit yellow and um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't the cleanest. So they came up with a little idea of washing the wool. So they wash the wool and they comb it and uh, my daughter makes these Welsh woolen hats and we've sold hundreds of them all around the world and um, they're a big part of my daughter's Uh, university career now, she's in sixth form and um, she's saved all the money and hopefully that's going to help her go through university so she at the moment is having more profit in them little Welsh woolen hearts than we are um, for the whole 4,000 nearly of our yearly clip so we we need to work together we need to utilize this amazing product and we need the public as well to understand um, what we've been paid for it and uh, big clothing companies, carpet companies, insulation would be another one. Welsh Government are paying for insulation, but they should be paying for naturally produced insulation, not plastic-based or oil-based, and the same as clothing. So there's a lot we can do together to make sure there's a future for wool in Great Britain.
0: You're still ploughing on, and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through FGinsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at FGinsight.com forward slash subscriptions today. Thanks to Alex and to Gareth Wynne-Jones for that. Like he says, there's so much work to be done to give wool a sustainable future in Britain. Let's hope the noise being made about the crisis actually leads to lasting change. Now, as a sector which stands the most to lose from a bad or no-deal Brexit, the sheep sector is looking at how it can thrive outside its main trading block. Jess Fredenberg has been getting the inside track from National Sheep Association Chief Executive Phil Stocker and Yorkshire Dales Farmer Neil Hesseltine.
4: It's just under four months before the UK fully leaves the EU, i.e. the end of the Brexit transition period on the 31st of December. We're asking how the different farming sectors are preparing for this and how farmers are feeling. We're kicking off with the sheep sector, which risks being hit the hardest in the case of a no deal. 40% of UK sheep meat production is exported, 96% of which currently goes to the EU. Before we ask a farmer what he has been doing to prepare his business for the road ahead, we're joined by Phil Stocker, Chief Executive of the National Sheep Association. So, Phil, a no-deal Brexit is looking increasingly likely... Just today as we record this, the chief EU negotiator, Michelle Barnier, has said that talks with the UK must be wrapped up by the end of October if we are to avoid a no deal. So can you give us, just to start with, can you give us a quick recap of what a no deal would mean for sheep farmers, knowing what we do now about where negotiations are?
1: Well, a, a no deal at the moment would mean that we would end up paying tariffs. We would still have access to the European market, but we'd end up paying tariffs on sheep meat going to the European Union. And we know that those sheep meats are in the region of about 46% of the the value of the product. So it would put a huge cost on um, on sheep meat going to the European Union. But in addition to that, there could also be some disruption, particularly when we first leave the EU, because there's still a lot of practical things that haven't been resolved at the moment. Things such as third country listing, health certificates and meat stamps. And uh, in the case of a no deal, you know, it could still take some months for those things to be resolved. And in that situation, there would be no access at all for a period of time until those issues have been resolved. <laughs>
4: Yeah, so it's a really huge impact, isn't
1: it? It's a massive impact, Jess. And, uh, you know, when you think of the the, the global figures, you know, 40% or so of our Sheep meat production here in the UK is exported and 96% of that volume goes to the European Union. For all the work that's being done on trying to open up new markets and, and, and discussions with free trade agreements with countries across the world, at the moment for the foreseeable future, nothing is going to replace the volume that currently goes into the European Union.
4: So what is your sense of how sheep producers are, are feeling at this point? And are they... Are they starting to prepare their businesses or have they been preparing their businesses? You know, how how are they kind of looking to that date at the moment?
1: Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of sheep farming farmers out there that are starting to prepare their businesses and they're aware of the longer scale changes that are going on. I don't think that many people are actually um, making changes to their businesses specifically to prepare for the 31st of of December, and I think it 's worth just um, reminding ourselves that although you know people like yourself and myself and many others in our situation talk about Brexit and farm policy every day, but um, most farmers um, on the ground at the moment still think more about um, their sheep when they go go around them in the morning, they think about the weather they think about the grass they think about the prices in the market. And and actually over this last, um, well, since COVID-19 uh, outbreak, I guess, back in, uh, in in March or earlier this the spring, there's been very little on the news, on the media about, about Brexit. So it, for many, many farmers, I would say it's is, it is off the agenda. They've been given many assurances for the last four years or more now that this is going to be a doddle. It's going to be easy to get a deal. Uh, people shouldn't be concerned about it. And so I guess there is a a sense of confidence that thing, things are going to be OK. And I would say that for the majority of farmers, uh, Brexit, the 31st of December, is not necessarily on, on their minds. What is on their minds is longer-term policy change um, that might affect the way they run their, their, their businesses in the future.
4: OK, so what are they doing to respond to that then?
1: I think um, in terms of um, a, a longer term, scale changes to their farm businesses were it, it has become fairly clear that uh, that our, our agricultural policy is going to take us in two directions one is about um, our industry needing to be more productive um and the second one is about our industry um uh, both maintaining and further in, enhancing our environment and i would say that our when we when we talk about enhancing our environment that's in a, in a, a wider sense it's not just um wildlife habitats um it, it it's also um, access. It's about um, uh, people's health and, and well being. So our environment should be seen as, uh, as as broadly as possible, I guess. But the two directions are about making our um, farming enterprises as lean and as mean as productive and as profitable as we possibly can and then secondly to be delivering uh, for the environment and there's a strong likelihood that um, those farmers that are delivering well for the environment will receive public reward in the future and i think farmers are doing two things you know they are starting to put more uh, effort into uh, benchmarking understanding their businesses understanding where they maybe experiencing experiencing losses um, using their inputs more widely wisely um, sometimes costing their businesses so they know where money is being spent and they're trying to determine where um, where that investment is yielding the best um, best results so there's a lot more um, of a focus going in on or-
4: are there any examples of different approaches that farmers are taking at the moment in terms of how they prepare their businesses for after December?
1: Yeah, there are. And I think it's worth just um, remembering that there, um, there's no two sheep farmers that are, are alike. You know, we've got some forty-five thousand sheep farmers here in the UK, and there, there's a whole range from um, you know large-scale flocks, uh, both in the uplands and the lowlands, to smaller family farms, uh, flocks that are part of uh, multi-enterprise um, farming businesses, right the way down to uh, part-time sheep farmers. So, you know, there's going to be a, a very wide range of different approaches um, from from people. So two examples of um, approaches of farmers that uh, I know very well. One would be a, a, a farmer in Hertfordshire who runs a, a large um, scale um, lowland commercial U um, flock. Within an arable enterprise um, where they're rotating grass, um, building soil, organic matter. Um, But a a farm there who's really got his his eye on uh, his costs, really managing costs, keeping costs as low as he possibly can, and just optimizing the output. Um, um, A a farm who's um, closed his flock and uh, is not bringing any replacements in, so he's uh, trying to reduce um is, is disease pressure and his parasite pressure again he's moving r- grass around the arable uh, farm so again keeping those parasite numbers low as well so someone who's um you know going for productivity and doing it in a way that is environmentally friendly as possible uh, right the way through to the other extreme of a farmer up in north yorkshire who um would have run a, a large-scale commercial flock um alongside a, a, a big commercial herd of cattle as well, who took a look at his business and thought that the enterprises weren 't contributing enough financially and um, he 's still uh, a serious livestock farmer, but he 's um, cut his livestock numbers gone uh, back, gone back to uh, um, a, a traditional a very traditional breed of um, of british sheep and and cattle um, reduced his numbers, but is really tapped into agri environment schemes. Um, and, uh, and is, is doing okay out of it both financially but also from a personal level because he's not running around frantically all the time and trying to push things to the extreme. He's just managing things to a, um, a reasonable level. It's given him both a, a, a profitable business but also a much more sustainable lifestyle as well with his family.
4: What would you encourage farmers to do or not do at the moment?
1: Well, specifically in relation to um, Brexit in the end of December, I think the one thing that I would be very nervous about would be um, finishing lambs or putting lambs on the market in very early January, unless you know where they're going and you've got a a home for them. And I would not want to do anything that that starved our domestic market. Our domestic market is very important to us. But, you know, we can, looking forward, you can just see that... um, December um, could uh, sorry January could be um, a really quite um, difficult time if there is any disruption to um, lamb going over to the European Union. Um, whether we get a deal or whether we don't get a deal, there still could be some disruptions. So I think we'll see a lot of farmers pushing their lambs through um, before the end of this year during uh, november and december and i think there'll be a lot more that will keep longer longer keep lambs through until february um and we again it's going to be interesting but we could end up with a a, a smaller number of lambs coming onto the market during january and maybe early february and um if the market stays strong that could actually benefit them and, and it could hold market prices up but i would say that um most farmers finishing lambs during that period probably should know where they're going, and um, and they should be for a, a designated uh, domestic market um, rather than simply trying to play the market and expect that they, that um, export market is still going to be with us and uh, and free flowing at that time.
4: And of course, we know that Scottish sheep farmers. Looking like they're going to have um, a compensation scheme for um, if, if there is a no deal Brexit, how likely is it that farmers elsewhere in the UK will also have that sort of compensation scheme in the event of a no deal? I think
1: it's highly unlikely that there would be a, a compensation scheme in any one of our nations without it being repeated everywhere else. You know, these um, discussions were happening this time last year when we there was a risk of a uh, of us crashing out with no deal at the end of October. So. Um, uh, schemes and thoughts and plans for uh, various uh, compensation schemes were on the table this time last year and we've been talking to DEFRA over the last month or two as well about the need for them to to come out and uh, and start talking about them again fairly soon I do think that um you know if it, it, this will happen on a UK basis I can't imagine it would happen in any any of our nations without it happening um ev- everywhere else I would also say that um a lot of the talk about compensation schemes has been um about the government coming in and rescuing the industry when it when it's gone wrong and there is a there is a more intelligent way of going about this in my mind, and that is that if the government um was able to um to openly say now that it would um it would come in with a scheme if if market prices um, collapse as a result of Brexit, it would come in and underpin the market to a certain level. That would do a lot to hold confidence up in uh, throughout the sheep market. Just bear in mind that we're approaching um, a time of seasonal sales when we're seeing a lot of store land sales um, and breeding ewe sales as well. And at the moment, those prices are really quite strong and the confidence is high. And that's a, a good thing. But I think as we get closer and closer to December um, with a risk of a no deal, um, that confidence could be undermined. And, and uh, if we end up with those stolen, um values um, falling away, then, again, we're going to end up with a situation of I'm going to discuss compensation for a certain sectors of the sheep industry. If the government were able to come in with a, um, a, a an announcement about um, a, a support package, if the market was to go wrong now, then it would probably do a lot to hold that confidence up and possibly avoid the market collapsing um, in, in the longer term as well.
4: That was Phil Stocker from the National Sheep Association. So Phil mentioned how sheep producers are adapting and preparing their businesses to be more resilient to shocks and stresses, particularly as we leave the EU. Some are drilling down on optimising their production output, while others are taking the opposite approach and becoming more extensive and reducing costs and maximising profits. One such farmer is Neil Heseltine and his wife Lee in Yorkshire, who have been reducing their flock of breeding ewes and becoming more low input, with positive results for their pockets and work life balance. I caught up with Neil and started off by asking about his farm and the changes they've been making.
2: We farm at Hilltop Farm in Malham, which is on the southern edge of the Oxdales National Park. Uh, I farm here with my partner Lee. We now have about 150 head of Belty Galloway cattle and we're currently lambing around about 100 sheep, which at one time peaked at about 800 sheep and has slowly come down in numbers over the years to, as I say now, to the number of about 100. The sort of date that's always in my mind about the sort of changes we made was going back to 2012. We were sort of starting to have concerns really about the sheep enterprise at that time. If we go back a little bit before that, we'd introduced or reintroduced cattle back onto the farm in the form of Belted galloways and that was part of a conservation grazing scheme but the, the the sheep were always very much regarded as the main enterprise on the farm uh, we were lambing probably around about 400 at the time we were producing mule gimmer lambs we were trying to produce um, as good a quality lambs as we possibly could as higher quality uh, and we were trying to produce a lot of mule gimmer lambs and sort of whilst we we're doing this and probably spending 60 to 78 hours a week on the farm just on the sheep enterprise the sort of cattle were doing their own thing out on the hill and i was screwing away with the sheep enterprise so we were lambing them sooner we were feeding the sheep right through the winter to get them fit we were feeding the lambs right through the summer so we're putting a lot of cost into these lambs so the sort of two enterprises were running alongside each other but the cattle were we felt were starting to have a positive environmental impact. The biodiversity of the farm was improving as a result of having them and grazing them in certain ways. And conversely, we're starting to see the impact that the sheep were having in the opposite direction. They were almost having a negative impact on the biodiversity of the farm. So we were starting to have all sorts of concerns. The amount of effort I was putting in, both mentally and physically, the amount of um, Money that we were putting into it, the amount of time I was putting into it, and as I say, we were starting to have some environmental concerns. So we just looked at the farm. We we literally sat down and said, let's have a look at exactly what's going on. Let's see what financially what the situation is, and then we can make some decisions. And um, we worked out that although the sheep were bringing in sixty thousand, the profit from the sheep enterprise that year was four hundred seventy eight pound, which wasn't a great deal of money, especially when you consider the amount of hours I was putting into it. And on the other side of that were the cattle who brought in about twenty thousand and the profit from them was eleven thousand. So so we, mm. we just felt at that time, Jez, that we had to make some some different decisions and and farm in a different way to what we what we had been doing.
4: And so, the changes that you've made since then, I know you've you've been making quite a lot of changes. Do you feel now that your business is more resilient and is it in a better place, looking ahead to the end of the Brexit transition period and what might be coming down the road?
2: Probably the most sensible thing to have done was to just get out of sheep completely. But we didn't really want to do that. There's a lot of cultural heritage attached to the area and to the farm and a lot of history of sheep farming in the area. We also believe that there's it's important that we use the hills to produce some level of food or certainly some produce from the hills. And we just felt that Um, that we had to uh, sort of respect that cultural heritage almost and say well we we do want to produce food we want to produce sheep but we can't produce it in the way that we're doing at the moment so we've just got to change how we do that and what we effectively did was we we just reduced numbers we said well we're on 400 at the moment if we go down to probably 200 um, we'll see what happens effectively and see if that improves the situation and we were really learning lessons from what the cattle enterprise had taught us which was if you don't actually spend any money on them which sounds a bit of an odd thing to say um but if you farm in a way which reduces those production costs then there's actually a greater likelihood that you'll have a bit of profit at the end of the day so we effectively were learning lessons from the cattle enterprise and applying those to the sheep And so we're in a position now, and this is completely counterintuitive, that we've actually went down to 200 sheep. That was definitely improved the situation. But as I say, we're now down to about 100 sheep. And we're actually in a better position now, both profit-wise, and that, as I say, is completely counterintuitive. Uh, We think the farm's in a better place from a biodiversity perspective. Uh, We also think that in terms of environmentally, our carbon emissions have been reduced because we're not feeding any concentrates, which have potentially come from all over the world. But probably most importantly, our our quality of life has improved. So instead of doing the 70 or 80 hours a week that we were doing previously, we're probably doing, I'm probably doing about fourteen total on the farm, and that's both cattle and sheep. We're in a much less precarious position than we were previously. We were very much in a position where lambs and sheep had to make a certain amount and we couldn't have any weather impacts or anything like that for us to be able to make any money, whereas now... We're, we're in a much more and the word you used is resilient position than we ever were previously and actually the profits on the farm are much more even than they ever were before and I'm putting less work into it so so we think in, in almost each respect uh, we're in a much much better place and, and more able you know you mentioned the Brexit situation we're more able now to to go through Brexit and feel much more confident that we'll come out the other side.
4: Do you do you spend much time near, like talking to other um other sheep producers about those changes that you've made and like whether it's something that might work for them as well? I'm just sort of thinking again with you know with end of the Brexit transition period in mind. Obviously there's been a lot of talk the last few years about how farmers can adapt their businesses to make them more resilient.
2: I'm not saying that everybody does the same as us, and and what I'm also not saying is that th- this isn't necessarily an anti sheep message. This is just a case of us looking at exactly what was going on on our farm and the changes that we made then made to our business to try to accommodate what we didn't think was quite working right with within our farm and on our farm. I do sort of give presentations on what we've done, and that gets mixed responses. Um, I think just the fact that decreasing numbers sits so uncomfortably with a lot of farmers. I get the impression in a lot of situations where farmers believe that it's either you do what we're doing at the moment and if that isn't working it's either carry on doing that or we get out and I actually believe that there is a middle ground uh, where you can reduce the number of stock on the farm, whether that be cattle or sheep, take the production costs out of the system and actually end up with more money in your pocket than there was previously and and you benefit in the environment at the same time. So so I, I absolutely believe there's a middle way and I, I sometimes think that farmers particularly think that what we're saying is an anti-farming message and it's completely not that. It's a very pro-farming message. I want people to be on farms the more farmers, the better, and I want them to have good and happy lives on farms uh, and and I actually believe that, that that is now possible.
4: What would you say to a farmer who knows maybe that they need to change their system to become more profitable, more resilient but is but is feeling perhaps quite anxious about that quite unsure
2: i th- I think it's become extremely apparent that change is around the corner uh, and I think as an industry we're a uh, relatively risk-averse kind of industry who don't like a lot of change but for us that change has been an extremely positive move we looked at the facts and we made decisions based on those facts and with the way subsidies are potentially going to be paid in in the future i think it's possible to make those changes to the actual farming enterprises and combine that food production with a responsibility towards climate change and a reversal of biodiversity decline and I actually think that that is, can give farming and the UK industry and the individual businesses a really rosy future because I think not only will that deliver a greater amount of profitability, I also think it helps with the work-life balance that we talked before and hopefully try and address some of the mental health issues that are prevalent, prevalent within agriculture at the moment. So so from, from my perspective, some change can give us a really rosy future.
0: Thanks to Jez and to Neil. It's good to have another Yorkshire accent on the podcast, especially when we're surrounded by so many Lancastrians. I better go before I start any trouble. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you've enjoyed it, whichever county you're in. We'll be back next week with more. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of new episodes of Over the Farm Gate and to catch up on previous episodes. From us at FG and the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.